there's a light at the end of the darkness, and it shines for all the world to see. It will shine on your heart if you will let it. I was blind when it finally shined on me. There is hope in that light for the hopeless and the soothing balm for pain and misery it's as near as your faith that sometimes seems fleeting Lord I was blind when it finally shined on me there's a light at the end of the darkness so look up when you are down and try to believe sometimes we have to be knocked down to make us look upward i was looking up through the bottom when it finally shined on me there's a light at the end of the darkness so look up when you are down and try to believe sometimes we have to be knocked down to make us look upward I was looking up through the bottom when it finally shined on me on me I was looking up through the bottom when it finally shined on me Hey, Jordan, call yours. i
deserve it Still you give yourself away Holy, overwhelming, never-ending Reckless love of God,
grade and below, that young lady will be taking you to Children's Church this morning, so you can meet her right back there at the back door. Kiddo, second grade and below, thank you so much, Jordan and Rhonda. We had double the blessing this morning, didn't we, church? Yes, amen. Make sure you tell both of them how much you appreciated that, and uh, I know I will be. And of course, please tell Rhonda how much you appreciate her. She got a phone call last night. Uh, from me asking if she could fill in, and I didn't tell her this, but I, I started to say, if you don't do it, I'll probably do it, and we don't want that. Uh, <clears throat> it'll probably be long or short, I'm not sure which. If you have your Bible, open it up to First Peter chapter 2. Kiddos, second grade and below, she, yep, she's still right back there. She's waiting for you. Children's Church, good time. Moms and dads, just so you know, it's just right down the hall, one door down. Uh, they don't leave the building anymore. They stay in the building, and all the doors are locked, and it's very secure. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17 is what we're looking at this morning. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I was real interested in anything that had to do with outer space. I think most of the world is the same way. Outer space, rocket ships, faraway planets, that kind of stuff just interested me. Still does interest me. I grew up in a time when they uh, would televise all of the space shuttle launchings uh, on network TV and so mom and dad would wake us up and we'd all gather in the living room around the TV at, I don't remember 5:30 or seems like it was dark outside and we would watch those uh, space shuttles go up and I think the whole world is like that they're interested in that sort of thing and then if I had to guess as to why it all comes down to one thing extraterrestrials right we all want to know about aliens we all have this interest about alien life forms on other planets. In fact, even today, as they send a, a launch over to this planet, or they're talking about sending a satellite over to this planet, we want to know, are they going to find intelligent life on that planet? We've always had that about us. And then even in our make-believe worlds, right, the, some of the most popular movies and television shows deal with outer space and alien life forms. I mean, I remember as a kid being enthralled watching Close Encounters of the Third Kind, not in the big movie screen, but I, you know, uh, we had to wait until it came on TV and it was edited for TV and a little bit cleaner. Or if it wasn't that, then as a kid, I grew up watching My Favorite Martian. That was a great show. Uh, for the longest, I called it Uncle Martian because, you know, in the movie he was his uncle or pretended to be his uncle. And anyway, long story short, if you don't know what I'm, Google that if you don't know what My Favorite Martian is all about. But it's just something intriguing. We're intrigued about whether there's intelligent life on other planets, and if there is, what would they look like? What would they act like? And how are they different from us? You see, the world is often intrigued by, by that which is different from what it is. It's intrigued by what is different and out of the ordinary, if you will. In our scripture today, Peter refers to the Christians as sojourners and pilgrims, but in the New American Standard Bible, verse 11, he refers to them as aliens, which is a fine translation of the Greek word there, which means a resident foreigner, someone who is making their home where they are not actually home. I believe he refers, and really this is a term he uses throughout his book, he refers to the Christians as sojourners or foreigners and things like that. The, the emphasis there at first is he's talking to these that are, are exiled out of their homeland. They've had to 
flee where they, where they used to be because of persecution they were facing. But here in verse 11, I think now it's different. The concept of calling us foreigners or sojourners or aliens actually stems to something much spiritually deeper. This word sojourner refers to someone who is making their home where they're not normally at home. And here's what I mean by it. it's a little bit spiritually different. You see, if we are born again believers in Jesus Christ, this is not our home. This is not our eternal place. We are only here for a period of time. We are aliens, foreigners, awaiting when we will be taken to our forever home in heaven. And just like we are drawn to the idea of outer space aliens because of how different they might be, the world is watching us. They're watching us that call ourselves Christians because we are supposed to be different. And frankly, we are different. We talk different. We use a different lingo sometimes, and that's okay. My hope is that what you will take home this morning is this point. Because the world is watching those who call themselves Christians, we need to live as Christ himself lived. We need to be set apart and different from the pattern of the world that we live in. Well, let's read our scripture and then we'll come back to this thought. Verses 11 through 17, 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, aliens, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Verse 13, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Verse 17, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would speak to each and every one of us from this scripture. Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be active and moving in this place. We know you're here, but Father, we pray that you would work in our lives and that we would not be resistant to that activity. Lord, we would be changed from the inside out. We would not leave this place the same way we walked in. Lord, we are wholly dependent on your Holy Spirit. Because my preaching is weak without you. And the reading of your word is meaningless without you. Without you interfering almost with our life. And we desperately, whether we realize it or not, we desperately are in need of this. It's in your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Like I said, it's a recurring theme throughout the book of 1 Peter. Us being foreigners, us being uh, sojourners, us being exiles, us being aliens. Sometimes uh, we forget the fact that this is not our forever home, that this is not our final destination. And sometimes when you live somewhere for a while, what ends up happening is you conform to their way of living. Let me give you for 
for some, uh, some examples. For instance, before the Givens clan moved to Coleman Hill, Texas, we rarely had crawfish. In fact, I can count on one hand the number of times we had crawfish before we moved to Coleman Hill, Texas. In fact, my younger three children had never had crawfish before we came to Coleman Hill, Texas. Now, we go to at least one crawfish boil every year, if not more, and we look forward to eating those mud bugs. I mean, goodness, my sons and I, we can put those suckers away. We enjoy a good crawfish boil. Here's another way we've assimilated or conformed to the way of living in this area. Before we moved here, we lived in Belton, Texas. And oh, the misery of having to drive to the nice movie theater in Harker Heights, which was a whole 14 miles away. Or oh my goodness, if we had to drive to the good HEB in Temple, Texas, which was a whole five miles away. You see, driving long distances was not something we were accustomed to. Waco, Texas was 40 miles away, and we just hated having to go all the way up there. But since moving here, we go to Lufkin, Texas, 45 miles away, at least probably once a week we average, sometimes multiple times. If I want to take my wife to see a movie, we got to drive to Lufkin, unless I want to go rent it at Redbox and bring it back home and send all the kids to the back room and pretend we're at the movie theater, right? And so we've grown accustomed, we've conformed in that way to where we are living. We can also list for you many ways our verbiage, our language, uh, the way we refer to things, how these have changed because of where we live. We've conformed in that way. But Peter's point in all of this is not about conversations. It's not about travels. It's not about where you see a movie. Peter's point in all of this is that as believers, we would remember that we are aliens. We are foreigners in this world. And there are certain parts of our life that should remain unaltered, that we should not conform to the patterns of this world that we are in for right now. So how should we not conform? For the sake of putting a label on what Peter is asking us, I want to just label this that we need to be set apart. And I use that because we've talked about this phrase before, to be set apart. It means to be sanctified. It means to be holy, not sinless. But it means that we see that we're supposed to be different from the world we are living in. And I want to give you four reasons or four ways that we are to be set apart from this scripture we read this morning. The first one is this, that we abstain from fleshly lust. That's what Peter says in verse 11, that we abstain from fleshly lust. Everything that this world longs for that is sinful can be put into this category of a fleshly lust. It's not just things. But actions, attitudes, the Bible gives us some lists in different places. For instance, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 20, the writer of Galatians, Paul, gives us this long list. And some of the things that he lists are sexual immorality, sensuality, envy, fits of anger, jealousy, sorcery, drunkenness, uh, lewdness, impurity. And then, he just, then Paul just closes this little list by saying, Things like these. In other words, I can't even list all of the things that can fall into this, this category of fleshly lust. Here's the point. We're not supposed to take this list and memorize it in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 20. That's not the point because the list would be unending. We could spend a couple of weeks talking about all the things that fall into the category of fleshly lust. 
And we probably could find some things that the Bible didn't even list, maybe. We've created some new ways. And even if we listed them out, we as humans, we are so creative, we can create some things that, oh, it doesn't fall under that list, so it's okay, right? We can create ways of sinning that we say are not actually sin. So what does Peter do? He gives us the very best guide for understanding what are fleshly lusts. What does he say? They war against the soul. What is it meaning when he says they war against the soul? Well, when we become born-again believers, God sends the Holy Spirit to indwell every single one of us. And so when he says war against our soul, you know, everyone has a soul. Everyone has a soul, but the soul of a born-again believer is a new creation. It is a new creation that is endowed with the living God who is actively transforming us day by day by day. And fleshly lusts, uh, sinful cravings, are literally making war against the holy God who resides within us. The phrase war against can literally be translated a military strategy. Listen, the fleshly lusts that the world longs for, the sinful cravings, are out trying to outflank the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Don't let it. Because what ends up happening is you just end up miserable, and that's that idea of, being, uh, of making war against your soul. Sin is constantly trying to scheme, and let's just call who it is, the devil is constantly trying to scheme for ways to cause you to be just this inner turmoil. That's what happens when you give in to it. But it's not just for the, the sense of spiritual growth and, and the war against our soul that we should not uh, give in to these fleshly lusts. Why? Because the world is watching. You see, the world gives in to fleshly lusts and doesn't think anything about it. In fact, they might even encourage you and say, oh, come on, you've got to live a little. The world is watching. We need to abstain from everything the world says is okay. The second way we need to set ourselves apart is we need to conduct ourselves honorably, he says in verse 12. Conduct honorable, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. And so being a believer, being an alien in this world is not just about not doing the wrong things, but also about doing the right things. Conduct. In your King James Version, this word appears as conversation. We've had this conversation before. That when the King James Version was translated in 1611, the word conduct did not exist in the English language. And so when they used this word conversation, it applied not only to what they said, but also to what they did. Your honorable conduct is a reference to what you produce out of your life. We could apply it to both both your actions and to both what comes out of our mouths. They need to be honorable. This word honorable means to be honest, to be full of integrity, to be praiseworthy, to be noble, to be pure. Among the people of God, we must set ourselves apart by showing that we, uh, we, we live differently than they do, than everybody else does. That we choose the high road, you might say. That when we can choose sin and when we can choose doing things the right way we do things the right way and it's no accident i don't believe i didn't plan this anyway today is tax day april 15th right although i don't think 
I think we have until Tuesday because of the national holiday tomorrow or something of that nature. But anyway, you know, it's real easy to cheat on your taxes. So I've been told. But Christian, the honorable thing to do is to be honest and full of integrity and to do what we are called to do and abide and, and, and obey. We set ourselves apart from this world when we live as honorable people. Why do we need to do this? Because the world is watching. The world is watching. And then we come to verse 13. Okay, so we've got these two. We need to abstain from doing the wrong things, and we need to conduct ourselves honorably. We need to do the right things. But then he says in verse 13, therefore, we've talked before, whenever we see the word therefore, we need to ask the question, what is it therefore? Well, we've talked about not doing wrong and doing right. What just kind of flows right in there, which is kind of interesting, this third way we set ourselves apart is submitting ourselves to every ordinance of man. And that word ordinance can be translated institution. Sometimes we use this verse, verse 13, uh, to say that Christians ought to obey the laws of the land. And, and I thought for a little while I could really pick on those of you who think you can take your five miles over the speed limit and you're still being legal and all that. Okay, I won't get on that. And again, I didn't plan this, this falling on tax day, but you know that... Listen, when we think about the ordinances of a man, this applies not only to laws and leaders, but to every tax, every uh, citation, every branch of local and bigger types of government, everything that has authority over us. Peter states simply, submit. Which, by the way, is also a military term as well. It, it has to do with placing yourself under the command of someone above you. Sometimes they use this word to refer literally to stand below something else. When we submit to every ordinance of man, we place ourselves in a humble position of obedience. And, and our call to submit, hear this, our call to submit is not a call to, to submission only when we like the person who is in office. You know where I'm going with this, right? You may not have voted for the person who is in authority over you, but he is still in authority over you, and so therefore we are called, what? To submit to that person. Every ordinance of man. And when I think about this, it, here, here's the thing, is sometimes we say, well, what, about, what if our rights are being infringed, right? What, what, what if we disagree with the one who is in, or what if the government is unjust? Don't we have a right to rebel. And then I think about the time of when Peter was writing this. Now, this is thousands of years ago. He's living in the Roman Empire. We've talked about the persecution that they faced just because they were Christians. The king he is talking about is Nero. And by all standards of judging rulers, he is a bad ruler. Not only is he, is he immoral, but he's unethical. This is the guy that would eventually behead the Apostle Paul, according to church history. This is the guy that would crucify Peter, the guy writing this book, according to church history. He would feed Christians to lions just to entertain the people of Rome. And then you talk about the Roman Empire. I mean, this is, a, this is an empire that would go into nations and just kill everybody. 
They would line roads with crucifixes that would be filled with anybody who disagreed with them. They had this thing called Pax Romana, which is Roman peace. You know what Roman peace is? Agree with us or die. So when you start talking about unjust governments or governments that are unfair to us or infringing upon our rights, nothing we have experienced in 200 years of American history takes the cake as to what Peter and his crew were facing. You know, I don't know everything about American history, but in the 45 presidents that have been in American existence, I don't, I don't know of a single one of them that have ever beheaded the, the, the name of, of a Christ follower, that have ever beheaded a Christian. I can't think of a single president who has ever fed Christians to the lions for entertainment. I can't think of a single president that when the White House burned, which it did, they blamed it on the Christians. That's what Nero did when Rome burned. And so, while yes, there is persecution in 2018, none of it takes anything compared to what, what these guys were doing, dealing with. And in light of such an evil empire, hear what Peter says instead. He says, submit, and then in verse 14, this is really interesting to me. He says, those who are sent by him, talking about leaders, for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. You see, what Peter is doing, though, is, is in light of all that the, the Christians are facing, in light of all the persecution they are facing, Peter is finding something good to praise the government for. They punish evildoers, and they praise those who do good. They're punishing us, by the way. They're killing us. They're putting us to death. But, you know, at least they're keeping evil people under, under pressure, right? They're punishing them. They're finding He's finding something good to say. He's finding the good in the government that he is supposed to be submitting to. He appreciates that at this, at this very least, the government keeps evil to a minimum. Church, shouldn't we do the same? Shouldn't we find the good in those that we're called to submit to? Shouldn't we say what we can say good about the government that we are under? I think we should. Listen, there's enough people griping about the government right now. There's enough people posting negative stuff on Facebook to, to meet the needs of everyone. So let's be set apart and instead let's submit. Let's find something good to say. Why? Because the world is watching. Finally, Peter wants them to recognize, fourth, their freedom. And to live as though they are free. Now, that's easy for us to understand here in 2018, living in America, all the freedoms that we so richly are blessed with and we enjoy. Thank the, God, thank the Lord that we can gather together in a public place and worship God. Amen? But here Peter is saying that you should live as free. And, and, and remember, they're being persecuted. They're being put to death because they will not refute the name of Christ. They will not say that, you know, okay, Jesus, the whole thing was a fake. And yet he says to live as if you are free. Why would he say this? Because he wants them to realize, and he wants us to realize, that our freedom does not come from man. Our freedom does not come from a bill of rights. Our freedom does not come from a constitution. Our freedom is from being in Christ Jesus. He says that we should live as bondservants. This idea of being a bondservant is one who is paying off a debt. 
we are indebted to Jesus for our redemption and our freedom. And because of this, we ought to live a life that honors his payment for our debt of sin. Not as one who uses freedom and grace to live in whatever vice, and that word for vice means wickedness. And unfortunately, there are those who use grace and God's never-ending forgiveness as a reason to go and do whatever they want. Which is interesting because that's what enslaves people to begin with. I'm free to do whatever I want. And that's how the lost world lives. I'm free to do whatever I want. They believe their freedom is in doing whatever they feel like doing. They do not realize that their idea of freedom is actually enslavement. Enslavement to doing whatever the flesh tells them to do. But Christian, you are free from obeying the flesh. You are free in Christ Jesus. And so no matter what human ordinances may confine us with, no matter if we are imprisoned by human ordinances, we are free in Christ Jesus to live in Him. Here's what I mean. I am an American citizen, and I'm free to do anything I want as long as I abide by the laws. For instance, I can go to the academy and buy a rifle and go out to some property somewhere in the country and sit down and wait for a deer to come out, and I can shoot that deer, take it home, and feed my family. I'm completely and totally free to do that, unless... The property I go hunt on is not regulated for hunting or it's somebody's private property and I'm trespassing. Unless I use a gun that is not, uh, uh, not supposed to be used for deer hunting or unless it's not deer season or unless I kill a deer that is not in that particular season. So there's all of these laws. So I have freedom to do these as long as I abide within the guidelines of those laws. But the moment I do that, what happens? I have lost my freedom. Let me put it in more in just a more simpler term. A fish is as free as it wants to be as long as it stays in the water. But as soon as it comes out of the water, what happens? Oh, it can do whatever it wants, right? No, it dies. And there's no more freedom. We should live as free because we realize we have this freedom only because of Christ Jesus. And freedom actually requires a certain amount of boundaries. And so the freedom we are given hinges on our submission. And we've talked about submitting to human ordinances, but here we're talking about submitting to the Lord, submitting our lives to Him, being the bondservant because He has paid our debt of sin. Why is this so important that we live in the knowledge of the freedom that God provides over any other kind of freedom we might think we have? Because the world is watching. They want to they know, Christian, are you for real? Or will you just give in to whatever the flesh tells you to do? Are you for real or will you do what feels good when you feel like doing what you want? Are you for real or will you just disobey the laws whenever it's convenient for you? Are you for real or do you rely on the freedom that your government gives you over the freedom that Christ gives you? So now what? Why is this so important? Why is it important that we realize that the world is watching? Look back at verse 11. He says, Beloved, I beg you. That little phrase, that that has just kind of echoed in my, my head all week as I've studied for this. I beg you. We believe that the word of God is the word of God. It is inspired by God. 
It was, in fact, written by God through the hands of Peter. And if you believe that, as I believe that statement, that this is written by God through the hand of Peter, then God himself is saying, Christian, I beg you. Maybe you have a trouble with that. I have a little trouble with that as I kept thinking about that. Okay, beg. I can't imagine the God of the universe begging me for anything. So really the understanding of that Greek word there is pleading, a strong urging. I really want you to get this. Christian, I am pleading with you. This is from God himself. Abstain from fleshly lusts. Conduct yourselves honorably. Submit to the authorities that I have put in place and live as though your freedom comes from me because that's exactly who it comes from. This is God himself saying, I beg you, I'm pleading with you to do this. Why? Well, in verse 12, he says, our good works, which they observe, they, meaning the world, the lost world, they see our good works, our choosing to love one another, our good work of abstaining from all sorts of fleshly lust, our good work of, of conducting ourselves honorably. The culture we live in has a certain identity that when we choose not to live within the confines of that identity, the world notices. They see what's different. They see what's different and they say, that's different. And they start watching, man, because why? We are just, we are magnetically drawn to things that are different. And I know sometimes Christians, we're like, man, I don't want to be different. I just want to fit in. No, we want to be different. We want to be set apart. And because of that, because of that, God says, I want you to be this way because they, the lost people, what does he say? Will glorify God in the day of visitation. Verse 12. If we will live differently from the world that we have been placed in as aliens among a lost people, they will notice our good works, our choosing to live honorably, our choosing to abstain, our choosing to submit, and they'll say, man, something's different. But then he says, and they will glorify God in the day of visitation. The day of visitation, what does that mean exactly? I have no idea. It could, be, it could be talking about the return of, of Jesus Christ, his second coming. Was the, I have no idea. But the point I'm really trying to emphasize is this. The world is watching us, and there is a day that is going to come very soon when they will look at our works, and they will see God, and they will say, wow, we believe in God because of your works, or not. And my question is, is which side of that statement do you want to be on? I want to be on the side that they look at my works and they say, that guy, he really, there is a God that exists. I will give glory to God because of what he does. That's, that's, that's what I want. And then in verse 15, Peter states, actually, let me, let me back up real quick. Verse 14, when he says that when he wants us to uh, submit to the rulers, submit ourselves, understand that when we do this, verse 13, we do this for who? For the Lord's sake, right? Some of your versions say, as unto the Lord, verse 13. I messed up. Verse 13, that when you obey those that are put in, in authority over you, governors and presidents and, and mayors and anything like that, when we do this, we are doing it as if we are doing it unto the Lord. Why? Because all authority is put in place by God himself. And then, verse 15, Peter states that submitting to the authorities, 
was God's will, and through our obedience to his will, Peter states that we will put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Why, why does he say that? What, 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 were the, what were the ignorant things that foolish men were saying? Listen, they were saying all kinds of crazy things about Christians in his day. One of the things they were saying was that the Christians were cannibals. You know why, right? Because of the Lord's Supper. They believed the Lord's Supper the same way we believe the Lord's Supper, that it was symbolic, that the bread was the body of Christ, symbolic, that the, that the wine was the blood of Christ, symbolic, and that when you ingested, you were symbolically taking the sacrifice of the blood and body of Christ and, and, and taking a sacrifice to pay for your sins. They, they believed that same thing, but those outside the church, they only heard bits and pieces. Those guys are eating somebody's body and drinking their blood. They're a bunch of cannibals. Crazy, foolish. They didn't know any better. Another thing they said was that they were a bunch of incestual people, that they were practicing incest. Why? Because the body of Christ, the church, would share everything, and they constantly talked about loving each other, loving children, loving women, loving men. I mean, just everything. And the world back then has the same problem the world has now. They equate love to sex. They cannot seem to separate the two. And so there was all of this false information going around that the church of Jesus Christ were a bunch of immoral, cannibalistic, uh, just horrible things going on. The, another thing they were saying was that they were inciting rebellion against the empire. Now this one was kind of true. And really they didn't know what to do with the Christians because the Christians were weird, right? They would pay their taxes, but they wouldn't worship Caesar. Because Caesar to the Roman Empire was a god. In fact, when Caesar would have a child, they would send out a message throughout the empire. They would call it the gospel message, the Son of God has been born. And the, and the Christians refused to recognize Caesar as king. That's the reason he put so many of them to death, because he wanted, and the Roman people wanted everyone to worship Caesar as God, and he refused. So they were seen as inciting rebellion. But the most foolish thing that they would say, that ignorant people would say, was that the Christians worshipped a dead man. They did not hear the whole story, or they did not believe the whole story. Yeah, they worshipped some guy that was crucified. We crucify people all the time. None of them have ever come back to life. That's what the Romans were saying. They didn't understand. Christian, we don't worship a dead man. We worship the loving God who surrendered himself to live on this earth, who surrendered himself to the cruelty of man, who surrendered himself to the cruelty of a cross, and was put in a tomb, and on the third day rose again. Hallelujah is right. And when we place our trust in him, he becomes our Lord and Savior, and he sets us free. Christian, the world is watching, and it is saying really foolish things about us and about Jesus Christ. And our job is not to take to social media and correct all of that ignorance by the word of our mouth. What, what Peter is saying right here is one of the greatest tools we are given is the life we live. And if we will live it as if Christ has made a difference in our life. The greatest tool we have to convince the world about the truth of who God is, the truth of who Christ is, is that we will live a life that glorifies him. By abstaining from morality, from conducting ourselves honorably, by submitting to those who are in authority over us and living as though we were free because we have been set free 
in Jesus Christ. Listen, I don't want you going around telling people they're ignorant if they don't know any better. But understand that you need to live life as though Christ has made a difference in front of as many people as you possibly can. And how we live says more about our desire to please God and bring Him glory than whatever comes out of our mouth. You've heard this before, right? You can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? I knew you could finish it for me. You can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? Our life says so much more about our relationship with God. It says so much more about do we really trust Him. It shows so much more about do we really love Him. And it says so much more about does He really live in and through us. We're going to have a time of invitation this morning. I, I really hope that you'll take this and be reflective on your life this morning. This is not a me looking on your life and judging you or you looking on anybody else's life and judging anybody else. Recognize that the Word of God is, is always for us to look inwardly to ourselves and to uh, attest our own lives against the truth of God's Word and see, is it making a difference in my life? We're going to have a time of invitation, and my prayer is that if you find yourself this morning saying, I've never trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that you would come and trust in Him to be your Lord and Savior this morning. There's nothing complex about it. It's just a matter of confessing Him as your Lord and Savior. It's, it's a matter of admitting your need for Him because of your own sin. Listen, we all sin. The Bible says everyone sins and comes short of the glory of God. We all need Him to be our Lord and Savior from that sin in our life. Would you bow with me in, in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank You for these this morning. I thank You for their patience as I've gone a little longer than normal. Father, I pray that Your Word has taken hold of our lives and it will take root. And Lord, if there are any here this morning that are struggling with that question, am I saved? Is He really living in me? Is the Holy Spirit really at home in my soul, Lord, that they would come and settle that this morning, not leave this place without settling that question, is Jesus Christ my Lord and Savior? And then, Lord, if there are, are those that are here this morning, they, they, they believe, they are born-again believers, but they just have not been living a life that would bring you glory, uh, especially on a day of visitation, as your word calls it. But, Father, I pray that this would be a, a day of rededication, a day of of, of driving a tent peg into the ground saying, from this day forward, I will live my life for God's glory and not for my own uh, fleshly lust. Thank you, Lord, for your word and its impact on our lives. And it's in your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Will you